0: Although the COVID-19 public health emergency in the United States has ended, SARS-CoV-2 continues to evolve and to pose challenges to human health. Next-generation vaccines and treatments could help protect against infection, transmission, and severe illness, irrespective of where that evolution leads. I'm Stephen Morrissey, managing editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Ashish Jha, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health and the former White House COVID-19 response coordinator. Dr. Jha has co-authored a Perspective article about Project NextGen, an approach to developing new vaccines and treatments for SARS-CoV-2 and for protecting against other threats. So, Dr. Jha, how much harm is SARS-CoV-2 currently causing in the U.S. in terms of new infections
1: and deaths? SARS-CoV-2 continues to pose a substantial public health and clinical problem. Obviously, these numbers change over time. Right now, we have been in some of the lowest levels of infection, still seeing five, 700 deaths a week. And again, those are some of the lowest numbers that we have seen throughout the pandemic. But just in recent weeks, we saw an uptick in infections, hospitalizations are starting to climb, we will likely see an increase in deaths. And then obviously, this is not just about this exact moment in the weeks and months ahead, especially as we get into the winter holidays, it is expected that we're going to see more infections and more serious illness as well. So this is an ongoing challenge.
0: And then moving forward, what are the concerns associated with The emergence of new variants and waning immunity from vaccines and previous infection.
1: Yeah, this is the big challenge that this virus poses. At this point, almost all of us have some immunity against this virus, but two things are happening. You actually highlighted both of them. One is that we're seeing rapid viral evolution, evolutionary pressure on the virus to evolve in ways that evade our immunity. And then you see a waning of antibodies and a waning of protection against infection That can happen as quickly as three or four months after a vaccine or after an infection. And that combination means that every four to six months you have a population that's still quite vulnerable to infection. Majority of healthy people are gonna be much less vulnerable to serious illness because of other parts of our immunity. But that vulnerability to infection is for all of us and for elderly and for other high-risk people, those infections can be quite problematic.
0: In your perspective article, you and Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra discussed the need for next-generation vaccines and treatments. So ideally, how would those countermeasures differ from the currently available options?
1: Here's how we think about it. Right now, we are developing vaccines that are trying to target a specific variant or a closely related cousin. And each year, the FDA, last two years, has updated the vaccine. With the effort to predict what variants will be dominant but here's what we know with all this rapid viral evolution the virus continues to change we may see viruses that really come from a very different part of the evolutionary tree and our vaccines may not be as effective against them and so that is a challenge and then what we've also seen is many of our treatments monoclonal antibodies be rendered ineffective because of ongoing viral evolution so the idea is can we build vaccines and treatments that do three things? One is treatments that are more durable and are durable to ongoing viral evolution. Can we build vaccines that are durable to changes in the virus? And then last but certainly not least, as incredible as these vaccines have been, they have been less effective at preventing infection and transmission than all of us, I think, ideally hoped. And so there's a question of can we build vaccines that really provide a high degree of mucosal immunity that would block transmission, block infection. This set of countermeasures could end up making a big difference.
0: So what are some of the scientific, regulatory, and business challenges associated with developing new vaccines and treatments for SARS-CoV-2? And how do you think this Project Next Gen, could help
1: overcome them? There are really all three of those challenges, scientific, regulatory, and business. And they're all, of course, related. The science behind building treatments that are going to be variant resistant vaccines that are variant resistant mucosal vaccines the science behind that has progressed quite rapidly but it's still not quite there we have some promising signs of being able to develop those products but there's still really important scientific work to be done to feel confident that we can build them because of that extra scientific work that needs to be done for private companies to invest in this they need to see a very clear regulatory pathway and they need to see that there's going to be a substantial market and what we have seen in my view is in, and in our view and the administration when i was there is really an underinvestment by the private sector in these areas because of the lack of clarity about whether you could overcome the scientific hurdles whether you could overcome the regulatory ones and get across the finish line and project next gen really in many ways modeled after operation warp speed with important differences is meant to overcome those barriers in the following ways first is investing in promising science. NIH has been funding a lot of very, very important scientific work in these areas, and Project NextGen extends that scientific progress and allows for companies with promising solutions to get the resources they need to test and modify their products. The regulatory part of this is when the FDA evaluates these products, often FDA finds it's getting data from companies that have used novel assays or have tested these products in ways that are not standard for the way FDA usually does these things. And that can cause substantial delays. FDA often needs to go back and ask them to run the assays in different ways. And the goal here was if FDA can provide guidance on what it would like to see, what it thinks is the scientific gold standard, that can help companies streamline their development process and therefore move more quickly and more rigorously producing products that are going to meet the standards that only FDA ultimately can assure the American people is going to be of the highest quality on safety and efficacy. If we do all of that, my belief is that you're going to see more business investments. You're going to see companies with a clear regulatory path, with clear investments from the U.S. government that is going to incentivize more companies to invest in these areas. And that public-private partnership will overcome a lot of the hurdles we've seen in development of these next generation products.
0: You do note in your article that other organizations beyond the federal government have invested in similar initiatives or have signaled an interest in doing so. How do you see these various efforts complementing each other?
1: Because it's a global pandemic, these challenges that we face are not uniquely American. When I was at the White House, we had long conversations with our colleagues in Europe, in Japan, elsewhere, who saw the same set of challenges that we did with our current vaccines and treatments, that they are extraordinary, that they're very useful, but that they have limitations and that building this next generation of vaccines and treatments would be useful. The benefit of coordinating our efforts with the Europeans, with the Japanese, with others, with organizations like CEPI, it has the ability to extend our investments in substantial ways. So if the Europeans invest in a set of technologies that turn out, for instance, not to be effective, coordinating with them would mean that we don't have to invest in those technologies. We can put our investment dollars elsewhere. So making sure that there is both scientific collaboration as well as coordination in our investments, will allow all of us to work much more effectively. And that was certainly something that was, I think, greeted with a lot of enthusiasm by our colleagues and partners in other countries and in other places.
0: Finally, how could vaccines and treatments that are developed as part of Project NextGen affect current infectious threats beyond SARS-CoV-2 and support the prevention of future threats?
1: Yeah. A major goal of this effort is to build platforms, and I'll explain more what I mean by that, that allow us to do all of this much more effectively. So let's think about, for instance, mucosal vaccines. We have had a challenge with building mucosal vaccines, and Project NextGen will invest in platforms. And what I mean by that is standardized approaches to measuring mucosal immunity, investments in companies that are building vaccines that generate mucosal immunity against SARS-CoV-2, If we think about our ability to learn how to build vaccines that generate mucosal immunity, that will be helpful against all respiratory problems. And if we get good at that and develop standardized assays and really effective scientific approaches, it will help us build vaccines against influenza, against potentially a pandemic flu or an avian influenza that might become a human pandemic. If we build these platforms for vaccines that are resistant against other variants of SARS-CoV-2, extending that to vaccines against other coronaviruses. Now, we've had three novel coronaviruses that have been quite deadly, SARS-CoV-1, SARS-CoV-2, and MERS, no reason to believe we may not see other coronaviruses in the future. So these investments, while they will be useful for SARS-CoV-2, I actually think will have large spillover effects, both scientifically, intellectually, and from a regulatory point of view, towards other vaccines and treatments that will be very useful against respiratory pathogens more generally, influenza, coronavirus, and others specifically. Thank you, Dr.
0: Jha.